Forgive the water up here. I've got a sore throat. My grandson gave me it because I cannot stay out of his face. And uh, I'm learning uh, that that's impossible. So I expect to have a lot of sore throats as uh, that little guy is uh, quite tremendous. We're looking at Romans chapters 9 through 11 for a couple of months here. And we're, we are taking this section of Romans in larger chunks. But this one that John Reed just read for us, verses 5 through 17 here in chapter 10. We've got this familiar contrast. It reads a little choppy, I realize, uh, because he's quoting a lot of Old Testament here. In verses 5 through 8, he quotes Deuteronomy 30 in, in, in sections. And then he quotes a lot of Isaiah and the prophets as he goes on through, and we'll talk about that. But there's a familiar contrast in this passage. Uh, hopefully it's familiar to you by now seeing as we've, uh, in sections, we've been through Romans uh, through a calendar year now. And this contrast is between righteousness by law versus righteousness by faith. And Paul never refers to righteousness that comes to us by the law in favorable terms, anywhere in his writings. And so when he says in verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live them, but live by them. And he's, and he's quoting here Deuteronomy 30 on through verse 8. Uh, even Moses anticipated, even the law itself stated as much, that no one would keep it flawlessly, that you would have to keep it. That's how you showed your faith. Obedience to the law back in the time when it was current with the people of God as a, as a binding system under the old covenant terms Obedience to the law back then was an expression of faith. It wasn't the way you, you got God. It was the way that you showed that you were related rightly to him. Faith that is always recognized in both testaments that God must make me righteous. Uh, I cannot do this myself. I have to have this happen to me from the outside from God. And this is due to our unrighteousness. This is due to our self-righteousness. We need Christ's righteousness in place of this. We need God to accept us above and beyond ourselves. And Jesus made that way possible in his flawless obedience to the law of God. We can't do what Jesus did. So I would just want to take verses 5 through 8 kind of briefly because we've looked a lot at this in Romans and then key more on verses 9 through 17. But looking at verse 6 where he talks about uh, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And then he gives a parenthetical comment, putting it in the new covenant context. Again, it, it reads kind of choppy, but that is to bring Christ down. In other words, we can't ascend to God on our own merits. We can't do what Jesus did. That's what he's essentially saying, using Deuteronomy 30 as a, as a bridge text. Or verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, that is to, to bring Christ up from the dead. We can't conquer death on our own. Jesus could, Jesus did. He's, he's putting it all on Jesus here. Paul's quoting Deuteronomy 30 in these verses. He's adapting that Old Testament text to his argument. And what Deuteronomy 30 says, looking at now verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And then in parentheses in most Bibles, that is the word of faith. that We proclaim the gospel, in other words. This word of faith takes its fullest expression in the gospel. The law was preparation for it. That's what he's basically saying in verses 5 through 8. The law was preparation for the gospel. It speaks of what was to follow it. And so Deuteronomy 30 that he's quoting here in verses 5 through 8, it's a text where the Jewish people under law are told by God, obey me. God says to them in Deuteronomy 30, choose life, not death. Choose blessing, not cursing. 
But the instruction itself in Deuteronomy communicates also that everyone is powerless to make ourselves righteous. We just can't do it. Though we try, and, and even the Jew with his advantages before God could not. So none of us, Jew or Gentile alike, are, 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 are able. We're all powerless when it comes to exercising uh, righteousness, but we are not powerless to exercise faith. And so Paul wants to show again in this place in chapter 10 that it's always been by faith. That's always how you are justified or declared righteous before God is by faith because that's how Jesus' righteousness is transferred to us. And so obedience to the law was an expression of faith back in its time. And now we are obeying the gospel in ours. And the reason is because God brought his word near. See that in verse 8? He emphasizes this. What does it say? The word is near you, verse 8. And ultimately, it took a, a physical expression when he sent Jesus, the word made flesh. I told you last week that Israel misplaced along the way what faith was supposed to be. Isaiah says down in verse 16, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? He was talking about the context of unbelieving people in his day. The prophets were covenant enforcers. They were always sent to the nation to say, look how far away you've gotten. They weren't there just to dream up things about the future. Very little of the prophets deals with the future. Most of it deals with the present that they were in and bringing people back to what was revealed to them in the past and that they needed this to move forward to what God had for them. The reason that Israel was unbelieving is they came to believe in self-righteousness. And I tried to warn us last Sunday that the very same temptation appeals to us here in the Bible Belt. Now let's key this morning on what follows here in verses 9 through 17 because the emphasis again in verses 5 through 8 the emphasis on righteousness by faith, not from the law. We, we've covered this a lot in Romans as we've gone through. But as you look at verses 9 through 17 now, you see a lot of emphasis on faith believing rather than faith doing. Now, the New Testament holds these two in tension. We're not justified by our works, but our works indicate that we are justified by God. So the New Testament holds this in tension. But in this text, Paul is emphasizing Faith believing is the way we get Jesus' righteousness. It's not by anything that we do except in exercising faith in what he has done for us. It's not faith itself that saves us. It's what we place our faith in, who we place our faith in, Jesus. Faith doing is then the means by which we show that we have believing faith. But here the emphasis is on faith believing and the preaching that leads people to it. And so I want to frame a couple of takeaways for us, and I want to do so with the imagery in verse 15, that imagery where uh, it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. He's quoting Isaiah as he does frequently. But using this image, let's take this passage from two angles, both having to do with beauty. How beautiful are the feet of the one who, who proclaims good news. This, this text from Isaiah that Paul brings into this passage. I think we can get some takeaways from this in talking about first the beauty of faith believing the gospel. And then second, the beauty of gospel preaching. That's how I want to come at uh, this text today in emphasizing what beauty is in this context and how it works. 
The beauty of faith believing the gospel, that's what we'll talk about first, and then the beauty of gospel preaching. And by preaching in this context, he means all of us, not just one of us, me. Yes, I'm a vocational preacher. I make my living preaching the gospel. But in Romans 10, we're all preachers. Note that. And the reason is because the gospel is a spoken message and all believers are its messengers, all of us. Now, before getting into these two angles, we have to reclaim the word beauty. I want to use this idea of beauty and what it is. And we've got to reclaim the word, what it means, because culturally, beauty is always confused with glamour. And glamour and beauty are not exactly the same thing. And we get clued into the difference by the imagery in the text here in verse 15. Beautiful feet. That's not the glamour shot usually, right? How many magazine covers have you seen and it's her feet up on the, you know. It's usually not like that. Glamour is the stuff of fashion magazine covers. Glamour is the stuff of cosmetics ads. But if feet can be beautiful, then we need to ask, what is beauty? Because probably most of us in the room, if we take a poll, I would think most people say, you know, I don't consider feet the most beautiful part um, of the body, unless you're a weirdo, and and we may have one or two of those uh, around here as well. Uh, I'm just kidding. Please don't write me about that. You called the congregation of God a weirdo. I, I did not. Beauty is this. I get this from an Irish, of course, an Irish philosopher named uh, John O'Donohue who said that beauty is that in the presence of which we feel more alive. That's beautiful. And so we're using it to talk about beauty. Beauty is that in the presence of which we feel more alive. It's not the same thing as glamour. There's a lot of glamour and glitz and, and, and the latest celebrity on the cover of the magazine. But beauty is that in the presence of which we feel more alive. And that works in this particular context in Romans 10 where we are. What is the beauty of faith believing the gospel? The first of these two considerations in these verses before us. The beauty of faith believing the gospel. And we've already seen one beautiful reflection of this back up in verse 8. The word is near you. God comes near. Ultimately, he incarnates takes on human flesh. He doesn't ask us to do for him, but to receive what he will do for us and has done for us. He doesn't make his word impossible to get to. He doesn't send us out on a quest. He comes to us. This is part of the beauty of faith, believing the gospel. Another part of this we see in verse 11. I'll come back to verses 9 and 10, but look at verse 11. For the scripture says... Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This is beautiful too. The way the gospel believed, faith believing, counteracts shame. And Paul is stressing this. Please note, look back up in your Bible at the last verse in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 33. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When you're reading your Bible, you look for things repeated, right? That's where the emphasis is. So on down now to verse 11, just a few verses later, the same scripture is repeated. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He's emphasizing this, stressing it. Now these words, he's quoting from the prophets Isaiah and Joel. He's he's mashing these two together. 
And both said this about not being put to shame in a context of messianic anticipation. In other words, this is what the Savior will do. The coming of the Savior will mean this, that believing in Him will deal definitively with our shame. He covers our shame with His mercy, and there's true beauty in that because beauty is that in the presence of which we feel more alive, and under a burden of shame, we feel dead and discarded, and that, this is why shame and shaming is never a gospel motivation, never. God cancels our shame. He doesn't use it to goad us to do the right thing. I talked with you not too long ago in another sermon about the difference between guilt and shame. Maybe you'll remember that, that, that guilt is tied to an event. I did that. Yes, I'm guilty of that. But shame affixes to the memory, and it, and it affixes to the person. Because I'm guilty of that, I'm not a good person. Because I did that, I should be rejected. That's, that's shame. Jesus cancels our guilt, and he covers our shame with his mercy. He, he counsels our shame with his mercy because we deal with our shame by staying mindful of how God has dealt with our guilt, that he's canceled it through Jesus Christ and that we're justified by his grace, not our performance. And so, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame and verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And between these two, in verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek on this point. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches of mercy on all who call on him. This is beautiful stuff. It's beautiful because anyone and everyone who calls on him, what we have against ourselves is that for which we're guilty and that for which we feel shame. And we're good at shame. We're good at shaming. I love the story Brian Stevenson tells. Uh, Brian Stevenson is an attorney who once represented a, a death row inmate in Alabama. The inmate was, uh, in, in this particular case, the inmate was developmentally delayed and he was clearly mentally ill. Uh, he did not have a, a good touch with reality and that did not excuse his crime. But Stevenson felt that the sentencing of this man should have taken into account, it didn't at the time he was originally tried, the emotional and the physical abuse the inmate suffered repeatedly growing up in the foster care system. He'd been in 19 different homes and he'd been abused in half of them. In the prison where that inmate was located, one of the guards decided to give Brian Stevenson a hard time. Now, Brian Stevenson is an attorney. And this particular guard, uh, the warden is the one with the authority, but in this particular case, this guard made no secret that he was giving Stevenson a hard time because Stevenson is black. This was a, a, a guard who was unapologetic and very open about his racism. He made Stevenson subject to a strip search one day just because he could. That's something attorneys didn't have to go through. And for his part, Stevenson kept his focus on helping his client. He didn't want to make it any worse for his client than it already was, so he endured it. But something changed after the case went back to trial. Because this guard was assigned to Stevenson's client, he had to personally take uh, the, the inmate down to the place where the trial was and sit in on the trial and hear the testimony of how the foster system had failed this inmate and contributed to his mental state. Unknown to Stevenson, the prison guard was himself a casualty of the foster care system. 
It had deeply broken him as a teen. He had suffered abuse in foster homes. And when that guard heard Stevenson defending this prisoner who suffered the same kinds of abuses he did in their formative years, the guard's outlook toward Stevenson changed almost overnight. And he told him the next time Stevenson showed up at his prison, Stevenson thought, well, I'm in for it again with this guard. And the guard pulled him aside and he said, I'm ashamed of how I've treated you. He expressed appreciation for how the attorney had gone to bat for the man. The guard to that point cared nothing for. And then he shared with Stevenson parts and pieces of his own painful story. The guard now saw himself and the inmate. And when that attorney had argued on the inmate's behalf, the guard heard Brian Stevenson standing up for him too, and it released him from all that animosity that he carried around. Animosity is always looking for somebody to shame. When meeting with his client leading up to the reopening of the trial, Stevenson said the inmate always asked him for a chocolate milkshake. He fixated on it. And that was part of his condition, fixation, complete and total fixation. He was very, very childish in the way that he uh, communicated, have you got my milkshake, have you got my milkshake? And he couldn't understand why there was never a, a milkshake. And the prison wouldn't let Stevenson bring him one. But the guard told Stevenson on the way down to the courthouse the next day, after he'd heard Stevenson's arguments the day before, knowing, having heard the inmate ask Stevenson for a chocolate milkshake so many times, the guard pulled off on the interstate to a Wendy's and went in with his own money, with Confederate flag tattoos and racial signs all over him, bought a chocolate milkshake for this black inmate sitting in the van. I don't have to tell you that that's a beautiful story. We feel it. Even if you resist it, it draws you in. And we feel the shame retreating in the advance of beauty like that. It doesn't save anyone, but it rings true to what does save. As one of C.S. Lewis's uh, characters in a, a novel of his called Till We Have Faces says, when she reflected on her encounters with something beautiful, it set her to longing, always longing, somewhere else there must be more of this. Somewhere else there must be more of this. We know where somewhere else is. How much more shame-killing beauty is there in Jesus' actions on our behalf, what he's done for us? It's, it's certainly more than a chocolate milkshake's worth. Much more. The beauty in faith believing is that we get to go and stay where Jesus cancels our guilt by mercy and holds no shame over us anymore, no matter what you drug in here with you today. It's beautiful what he does for us. Well, how do we go there? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Belief, believing, never has it been about intellectual agreement or just saying yes to Jesus. Believing is trusting. And trusting is like putting your full weight on something. If you put your full weight on something to hold you up, that's what, that's what trusting is correspondingly in, in, this, uh, in what we call believing and exercising our faith in Jesus. And, and what believing does is it puts us in a kind of apprenticeship with Jesus where we're learning from him. And that develops our faith into allegiance to Jesus, even to love, the allegiance of love. 
as we've talked about before in other passages. Verses 9 and 10 are telling us that trusting Christ is both inward and outward. It's out of these two verses here that we get the truism that while faith is personal, it's not private. Some want to read a kind of sequence out of this. You know, they, they come to this and they say, well, this has to happen before that happens, and this happened first, and then that happened. But it's, it's really not procedural here. It's both and. It's just the way he has to write it out in English. It makes it look procedural. He's talking about a one and the same occurrence. And that salvation isn't this transaction with God, this business dealing where you, you, know, you felt some conviction because the preacher preached a, a sermon and you walked up the aisle and you went to the back with a guy and you filled out a card and now you're in the kingdom of God. Don't miss the giving envelopes. You know. It's not a transaction with, with God. It, it's, a, it's a steady transformation. And even if there are steps back, there will be steps forward. And it's, it's personal, but it's not private. It's quite public, actually. Now, our second angle, this takes us into our second angle, is the beauty of gospel preaching. We have the beauty of faith, believing the gospel. That's our first takeaway. And now the second one. Beauty, again, is that which um, makes us more alive in its presence the beauty of gospel preaching, of course the gospel doesn't preach itself, not really. It requires a preacher. And again, by preaching, in this context, he means all of us. In Romans 10, we're all preachers because the gospel is a spoken message to people about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, and all believers in Jesus are there by his messengers. It's really a, a great privilege. Inward belief but the heart one believes, outward expression of that belief, one confesses, and he goes right into then what it looks like to make confession. The part of making confession is the public proclamation of our faith, identifying ourselves with Jesus, presenting it, helping people understand why they need the righteousness of Jesus Christ personally applied to them, because they have unrighteousness and self-righteousness both. Jesus never did. He has to be our stand-in, our substitute, our cover. You know, there's a line you'll hear in our circles sometimes, and it's well-intentioned, but people will say, uh, always preach the gospel, sometimes use words. You've probably heard that. It's accredited, uh, or it's, it's um, St. Francis of Assisi is supposed to have said it, but there's actually no evidence that he said it, and it actually would have been an odd thing for him to say because he was a preacher, and he preached about five times a day sometimes. But this idea that we're always preaching the gospel and sometimes we use words, it, it, I get what it's about at its, at its core, that it, we're, our lives are speaking louder than our words. And, and while that can be true, our lives are not a substitute for words. And I think sometimes people uh, run to that because, as Shekinah was rightly exhorting us earlier, we, it's, a, it's a courage deficit. Well, my life is speaking, you know, as if by osmosis people... People get uh, what, what, you, what you're about. It's true that um, we can often get the tune of the song before we get the lyrics, but uh, the gospel is a spoken message. And if you minimize this or otherwise never speak it but hope your life just communicates, you know, you might end up preaching yourself potentially the gospel of I'm a nice person, which doesn't save anybody. And also, we tend to assume too much about our example. I mean, 
There's a place in uh, John Calvin's writings where he talks about Roman Catholic friends who were drawn to the reformational emphasis, but they, they kind of overreacted. And uh, he says that uh, he's got these Roman Catholic friends who are reacting to the rules and the regulations of the church by saying, uh, well, we just need to love everybody. And Calvin goes, as if that's easier? Have you tried to actually love somebody? Said, you know, our example is going to have its flaws. We tend to assume too much about the power of our example. Yes, they will know us by our love, but they won't know him, the object of our love, without some spoken context. And we've already addressed this in Romans. Way back in chapter 1, do you remember how Paul says that creation is speaking and it's telling people that there's a God of variety and depth and context and, and all of it is out there, but it, and that's enough to judge you, but it's not enough to save you? And he comes back in chapter 10 to that idea in chapter 1. He says, salvation comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Look at it, verse 14. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it's written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. He's talking about Israel for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Who is the word become flesh? The word became flesh as a preacher. People call Jesus a healer and a wonder worker and, you know, a, even an activist and a foil to the, to the religious power structure of his day. But he was a preacher first and foremost. He wasn't just doing his good works as he walked around Jerusalem of old, he was connecting his works to his message. His message over and over again is the kingdom of heaven is near. Ding, ding, ding. Deuteronomy 30, where have I heard that before if I'm a Jewish person? The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe this good news that I'm giving you of the nearness of God to you in the person of God standing before you with the word of God speaking it to you. you know, we were back in, uh, back in May of last year, we were in Israel and, and one of the great moments in a trip like that is um, there's a couple of places where, um, well, I, I'm thinking of outside the temple, there's some pavement that they know for sure goes back to the first century, and they know for sure Jesus Christ walked on this pavement. So when you stand on the pavement, you're actually on pavement where the Lord himself walked on that pavement. And that's pretty cool. It's hard to take in. I mean, you're standing there going, well, <laughs> you know, I don't know how to take this in. But then the thought occurs. The coolest thing is that I don't have to go to Jerusalem to get his words. He's given me his words by coming near to me in America. In my case, in, at a podunk town in North Alabama. His words are where he put the premium. Not that we would step where he stepped or go down and kiss the pavement. Oh, Lord, you walked here. But that his words are what matters and what lingers. Verse 15, how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You've got to speak the words. Beauty is that in the presence of which we feel more alive. And what beauty does, beautiful things, they often create a desire for truth. And this is why um, We've put a premium on art and story and creativity. 
Because we uh, recognize, those of us who do put a premium on that, that that God can use what's beautiful to, to draw people in. He does frequently. But the truth of God still has to be spoken. And don't underestimate here the power of the Bible itself. A man named David Skeel wrote a book called True Paradox. Um, the Armstrongs in our church know David Skeel. They were in church with him up in Philadelphia. He's an elder at 10th Pres up in Philly. And in this book, he, he writes about the power of the Bible itself drawing him to faith. He didn't grow up in a Christian home. Here's how he writes about it. He says, I was taking this uh, trip around the country just kind of wandering around, and, and in my literature classes in college, we often read works with biblical references. Not having been raised in a religious environment of any kind, I, I never recognized any of the references. So I decided that I would at least read the Bible so I would be a better literature student. I'd be better understand the stories that I was reading and how the Bible had impacted the, the authors. And so I started in Genesis in the back of a borrowed van that we were driving at that point north of San Francisco. And he said, I was blown away. The raw psychological honesty of the Bible's portrayal of its major figures had the ring of truth. In other words, the Scriptures didn't whitewash its heroes. We got them clay feet and all. I hadn't expected the profusion of genres, history and poetry and and, and teaching, uh, the power and elegance of the overarching narrative that we repeatedly go astray and yet God loves us and longs to take us back. I was seeing it on every page. He says, in the years since, and now he's an elder in a Presbyterian church in Philadelphia, that I've spent far more time thinking about the other dimensions of Christianity, explaining the puzzles and paradoxes. But my own embrace of Christianity, while it had several stages, the sheer beauty of the Bible is what first drew me in. And it's what I go back to when I'm asked over a beer late at night why I believe that Christianity is true. He is a Presbyterian, so give him that. In an era in which it's easy for people to dismiss the Bible as hopelessly antiquated or embarrassing to our cultural sensibilities, regressive, many have taken that position without ever reading the Bible for themselves. I don't want to give you the impression that everyone who reads the Bible automatically believes. Because verse 16, Isaiah says, they don't believe. I'm teaching them the Bible and they don't believe. The Bible's not a magic book. But there is a beauty to behold in the things God has said through the 40 or so human authors writing over a period of a thousand years, the things that God wanted us to know. And many have said that when they encounter the Bible, as Skeel put it, it has the ring of truth. It's it's honest. Whatever they experience around Christians, they read the Bible and they see, boy, there's an honesty here. All these heroes are deeply flawed. And maybe they're overwhelmed by that all at once, as skill was, or, or, or it whittles away at them over time. But they keep reading the Bible, and then someone speaks to them and makes connections for them, and, and they are today people of God in Christ. There's many such stories of that. Now, some of you think you're hearing me say, beauty is what works. This is the missing ingredient. And so we need better art and music and, you know, all of the... Uh, embarrassing, tacky ways of public Christian witness. We've got to get rid of all that. And I want to tell you that I, I trend that way myself. And, and because some of you are like me in this, you get easily embarrassed by some of the forms that our witness takes. I get dismissive. 
and that's wrong. Uh, in fact, um, I made a drive-by remark a few months ago against the God's Not Dead franchise of movies, probably offended half the church. And some of you pushed back at me, and on reflection, you're right, and I'm wrong about that. You were right to push back. God can use anything, and he does. A pastor friend of a friend of mine, okay, friend of a friend of mine, was uh, tweeting this week. He's a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he said, uh, I just want you to know that I encountered three stories this week of people who got saved these three ways. First, after listening to a cheesy commercial about Jesus on Christian radio, actually got converted. The second, after reading a conversation thread about God on Facebook. Facebook? Does anything good come from Facebook? There I go again, being dismissive. Sorry. And then my favorite of the three instances this pastor cited, he heard someone talk about coming to Jesus after singing Highway to Hell by ACDC and realizing they were going there. (laughs) Make of that one what you will. Angus Young as an instrument of the divine. The point that pastor was making, and he needed to hear it and I need to hear it, those of us who get a little too smart for ourselves sometimes, God can get through to anyone with anything. Now, this doesn't, this doesn't justify sloppy agape on our part, you know. This doesn't mean every approach is equal. I have my preferences and my critiques of approaches that I think are less than best, but God doesn't consult with me on personal taste. Aren't you thankful? He doesn't check in with me if it's okay for him to bless or beautify forms of witness that I might dismiss or even vilify. It's taken me a long time to learn that because I'm pretty arrogant when it comes right down to it. Anyone responding to the message of the gospel in faith believing is a beautiful thing to behold. And just to conclude here, because we're up against our time, I want to give you some practical takeaways. If, if you think, you know, where do I start? You're telling me Romans 10 tells us we're all preachers. I'm scared to death of this. How do I do it? How do I get in on the beauty of gospel preaching? I think first we all have to get over the idea that spiritual conversations are automatically awkward. I think Christians go in with that mentality more often than the people we're talking to. I think people we're talking to are, are, are in a better position a lot of times and we're, we're you know, apologizing our way in. I, can I talk to you about Jesus? Yeah, we don't have to. And Yeah, why don't you talk to me about him? I'd, I'd love to hear more about him. You'd be surprised. There are approaches we can take that repel people and, and look weird to them, sure. But again, as I said, you, you never really know what gets through to someone and what doesn't. Let me leave you here with three questions and we'll be done. Three questions that are conversation starters. The conversation may keep going. The conversation may be shut down. But you can ask anyone if they have spiritual beliefs. Think about that. You can say to anybody that you're having a conversation with, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Why do you ask? Well, I have some spiritual beliefs. I'm... Curious about people's spiritual beliefs. Do you have any that you would talk to me about? Or putting it in this context, do do you find anything, if you want to to get really Romans 10-ish about it, do you you find anything that's beautiful about spiritual beliefs? Maybe you could do that. A little different angle. Second question, who is God to you? Who is God to you? You can ask somebody that and let them talk. Listen to them. And as you're listening, you ask God for wisdom that when it comes time for you to speak, and what does James 1 tell us? That anybody who lacks wisdom, God gives it generously without finding fault. I mean, it's like he's got this whole, you know, backhoe of it that he'll just dump on you. 
have some reasons in mind for why you find Jesus compelling, who he is to you, why Christian conviction helps you make sense out of the world. There's some things you can do to prepare yourself. But ask him, do you have any spiritual beliefs? Who is God to you? One final question I'll submit to you. It's a little more daring. If you believed something that wasn't true, would you want to know? Now you're going to get right to it with that kind of a question because uh, you're kind of setting them up to share with you some of their beliefs and you might say, you know, I don't know that that's true. And we talk about it. If you believe something that wasn't true, would you want to know? Listen, not every play we're going to run is a touchdown. We're moving the ball down the field and hopefully not doing touchdown dances on the 50-yard line. Not every at-bat is going to be a home run. It isn't even for the Hall of Famers. But you never know how God could use the barest contact with the ball. And some of you ought to just get up there and start swinging a little bit. Stop being so afraid and, and just venture to have the conversation. And, and use those questions if they're helpful. Or just go up and blurt out, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What do you think about that? You know, I mean, I don't know who you are uh, with this. <laughs> That's probably not advisable, but, you know, who knows? You never know how far your interaction with someone about Jesus could go. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. We're going to sing. We've got a couple of minutes here. We can do that. Uh, if you need to get your kid, uh, that's understood. I went a little long. Uh, let me pray for us. And then we've got this uh, chorus that we're learning, and we'll sing it again, and I'll dismiss this. Lord, we just ask you to help us because um, you've left us in this world for purposes that includes speaking the truth that we believe and that we would not uh, fall into fear or even laziness. Sometimes it says, um, well, I don't have to do that because um, God's bringing who he wishes in. And Lord, don't let us be like that. Help us in this church where outreach uh, has been a challenge for us. Uh, help us to to not look at this as, as we have no business being on this field. We, you've called us to this place. You, you give us the chin strap and the helmet, and you let us buckle up and go in and hit somebody. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be bold and, and courageous. We don't want to be offensive, but if we are, Lord, that it's Christ in us and not our manner and our mode. But, Lord, grant, grant that our church, even this year, would see additions through people coming to faith. And walking into this church and saying, what does it mean to worship God? I'm here to learn. I think I've had an encounter with Jesus. That would be thrilling. If we had 10, 20, 30 people like that, it would change our church. And you know, Lord, sometimes I think, uh, I think that's what you want to do. But we sit on our hands. And so help us. Help us to move and to respond and to act in keeping with your good purposes and that you keep giving us days, and the days you give us are so that people come into the kingdom. So we're grateful. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing.